start of this series, uh, we describe Babylon and what it's like living in Babylon and drawing some parallels what it was like then and what it's like today. While we weren't exiled far away from our land, it certainly feels and seems like Babylon has invaded us and we are here. But what if more than just living in Babylon, we're in a den as well? The passage before us is another one of these favourite stories from the Bible that uh, if you've grown up in church and uh, in a Christian family, you would have read it, you would have heard it. It's one of those, has everything, hasn't it? It has the, the hero, the anti-heroes, uh, the enemies, the rescue, the deliverance. It has all these elements which makes for a great story. In the last chapter, we saw the historic transition of power from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians. And the, the year here is around about 538 BC. And Daniel is an old man. He's in his mid-80s. That means that Daniel has been serving as an exile for over 60 years in the king's administration. And, and there is no, here we, we see no mention now of the other three guys, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They could be in another part of the kingdom, but most likely they were already dead. So Daniel is the only one remaining. And just to clarify something, there is some conjecture among historians as to the relationship between Darius and Cyrus. Both names appear. Some say they are the same person, while others say that it is... And I, I think that that is possible, that's possible. I tend to see them as different people. You see, Cyrus was the Persian king... And he created an alliance with Darius, who was king of the Medes. And they created the Medo-Persian Empire. And together this alliance conquered, they got together and they conquered the mighty Babylonian Empire. And though Darius, king of the Medes, was put in charge of the conquered city of Babylon... As recorded in this book, obviously, Cyrus was the main leader of the combined kingdom. So, in some ways, they were co-regents. Eventually, the Medes, who were the junior partners in the empire, were absorbed and therefore it was known as the Persian Empire, which is today would be modern-day Iran. So, let's look at our passage. And uh, in verses 1 to 5, we will again highlight the godliness of Daniel. Verses 4 and 5, this is what it says. It says, They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, this man Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. In God's providence, Daniel continues his role as a high official under the new administration. This is rare because new kings, just as new prime ministers and others, they tend to bring in their own people, right? That they they can trust, the ones that help them get to power. 
Yet here, even though he was part of the old defeated kingdom, he is quickly promoted to high office. Evidently, in a very short time, Darius was impressed by Daniel as a man of integrity. And, and so much so that he wasn't just the top three, he wanted to make him second over the whole kingdom. And this created some jealousy amongst his, his colleagues and fellow workers. Imagine trying to work in that environment when everybody's trying to get you. It's, it's a real den. They went through his posts on Facebook. They went through his emails. They went through his correspondence and found nothing to pin him with. What would it be like to work in that environment? And maybe some of you know. Maybe you have been there in a factory, in an office, when people just don't like you might be to do with your race. Certainly they hated him because he was a Jew. could be your religion. They didn't like him because, again, he worshipped God. He, they didn't like him because of his character, his goal, and he could not be bribed, he could not be bought. They couldn't corrupt him. They couldn't entice him. He lived so consciously in God's presence that here is a a man truly above reproach. And please note, please note that, that Daniel was hated because he was successful and godly. He was good at what he did. Doing the right thing then means doing the right thing is, not, is no guarantee that everything will go right with you. Please note that. So when, you, when you're about to complain and say, why does everything go wrong with me when I try to do everything right? Well, here you go. It's right here. In chapter 1, in chapter 1, remember Daniel and his friends take a stand. They resolved not to corrupt themselves with the king's food, and diet. The, the, the matter there was simply between them, it was more private. Then when we get to chapter 3, the three have no choice but to go very public because it's, it was a public thing when they're thrown into the fire, right? Everybody knows about it. But here in, in, in chapter 6, Daniel is somewhere caught between the two scenarios. And I think that as Christians, we we are going to face, whatever we face will be different to somebody else. And and you and I, there is no uh, booklet or or thing that you follow and says, step one, you do this, step two, you do that, whatever. No, you desperately need God's wisdom how to handle each and every situation and you will know the situation that you're facing. Because you know what? The enemy is always in pursuit. It's like a roaring lion waiting for somebody to devour, the Bible says. He never sleeps. He's trying to get us. 
There's a big target on your back and mine. So we come to the entrapment, verses 6 to 9. The royal ministers, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed, that's a big group, have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So it's not just the satraps, it's, it's everybody. This is how many enemies poor Daniel had. He wasn't invited to too many parties. He didn't get too many cards for Christmas. And, and they realised that if they were going to get Daniel, it had to do with the law of his God. Now get your head around this. So they, they are in the dark room planning a strategy. How to get this one fellow? And what are they going to attack? They're going to attack his strength, his faith. Just think about the extremes that these people went to in order to get their way. In this case, put out an edict that affects the whole kingdom in evil pursuit of one person. Just think about that. One person. Well, five, six hundred years later, King Herod went a little bit further ordering the killing of all infant boys under the age of two in order to kill one boy. Jesus. I think it's the old formula described by the psalmist, isn't it, in Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples, they plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they rise up and the rulers band together against who? Against the Lord and his anointed. So out of nowhere, these conspirators, they, they, they come to Darius with a proposal. Oh king, how would you like to be God for a month? Because passing a month-long order that forbids anyone to pray ex- to any, anyone except to Darius himself is exactly that. That's, you're going to be God for a month. Years later, the Romans would push the, the Christians to pray Kyrios Kaiser, which means Caesar is Lord. So any time they went into the home, knocked, knocked into the house, and say that somebody dubbed them in, the Christians, whatever, they would say the standard will be Kyrios Kaiser. And many believers who were a little bit, you know, flimsy in their faith, they would simply say, yes, yeah, Kyrios Kaiser, and went on about their business. They went to the next door, the next door. But some believers could not pray that. They could not say 
Caesar is Lord. And the rest of the story, you hear the story, read the stories of what happened to them. But what are these people, these conspirators, what, are, what is it that they're trying to do? They, they are, in, in, in approaching Darius, they're actually appealing to the weakest part of every leader and king, which was the weakness in Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Here, Darius is the same thing. What is the weakest part of every leader, of every business leader, of every king, of every prime minister, of anybody in power? What is it? It's their pride and glory. It's the weakest part. And dare I say, even every pastor. In the movie Bruce Almighty, some of you have seen it, God, played by Morgan Freeman, has had enough of Bruce's complaining and victimhood that he finally confronts him and offers him the irresistible proposal of taking the role of God for a week while God takes a break. At first, he's, he's selfishly enjoying the unlimited power just a little too much, even seeking revenge on those who previously did him wrong. Until he realises the damage his selfish pursuits were causing He couldn't give all people what they wanted because everybody was praying that they win lotto and suddenly everybody won lotto and that was not fun anymore. So everybody thought that they, you know, they only got a couple of cents, right? Instead of the millions. He couldn't give everybody what they wanted because it would have a flow and effect on others and society at large. He also found out he couldn't manipulate people's affections to satisfy his own. In the end, he humbly recognises that only God can be God. So here, back to Darius, that without thinking it through, he agrees to their proposal because all of his advisers are telling him this thing He agrees because they appeal to his very weakest point, his pride, his glory. He agrees. That's a great idea. So while Darius was a victim of his own pride and naivety, Daniel was a victim of his own integrity. Did you get that? His enemies had him worked out really well as predictably he will be faithful to God. If he had been a flaky, wavering believer, this evil plot would never have worked. His troubles came not from his weakness, but from the strength of his character. Like Joseph, he would be convicted not because of moral failure, but because of his virtue. And when they eventually arrested Daniel for being a man of prayer, the evidence against him was overwhelming. So let me ask you this question. It's an old question. It's not a new one. 
If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Hmm. To put it another way, could it also be said of us that the only charge against us was not fraud, was not sexual abuse, it wasn't violence, but the only charge against us was it had to do with our unwavering belief in God, like Daniel. Could that be said of us? I think it would be a wonderful the most beautiful compliment. Consistency, verses 10 to 12. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Verse 10. And three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. It's, it's, it's really remarkable that when Daniel hears, he learns that this law has been signed, he's not alarmed. He, he doesn't rush to the king and protest the loss of his religious freedom. Nor does he go the other way and reason that 30 days without prayer, it's not a big deal, guys, come on. So he'll just comply. No, he simply goes about his regular business, not changing anything about the way he conducts himself before the Lord. Yes, yes, he, he could have closed the windows and the, the satraps wouldn't have seen him pray, he could have locked the door. Or he could have said, I'll just pray in my heart, no one needs to know you. But note that last phrase again, which I think is beautiful, just as he had done before. You see, for some 85 years now, Daniel had prayed three times a day, morning, noon and night. He wasn't, after all these years, it's not as if he was going to stop now, now that the, the sun is setting on his life, right? Are you really going to give up now, after you've been faithful for all of these years? He prayed regularly, consistently, faithfully. Prayer was so important to him that he was willing to die rather than give up his right to come before the Lord. And long ago, long ago, you see, in the early days, he resolved in his heart, he made up his mind to serve God no matter what. In the end, obviously, they caught him asking God for help in his prayer room. That he was, that's what he was asking, God for help. And, and the, the prayer room then, forget about the, the workplace den and forget about the den that is coming, the lion's den, 
I think the battle is won and lost here in his prayer room. That's where the den really is. The prayer den, let's call it. Now, if you are, if you are thinking that this is irrelevant for, irrelevant for us some 2,500 years later here in Sydney, Australia, 2023... If you think that this is just some conspiracy that Paul is here just every Sunday, he's just scaring us, you know, preaching the same thing, think again. What I'm telling you now is not some dystopian scenario far into the future. In the UK, members of parliament have this week approved the introduction of censorship zones outside abortion clinics, which would criminalise any form of influence in those areas, including... Get this, silent prayer. This, in the Western world, this is the first time a thought crime has been introduced into legislation, and especially in the UK, in modern history. Thought crime. Just the mere act of praying in your heart, in silence. God. This it's this week. And everybody, no, nobody's making a big fuss of it. Oh, so what? Folks, there's a lot of flaky Christians out there. Okay? Just cultural Christianity is everywhere. This it's now abortion clinics. But what what is going to happen when they get to schools, Christian schools and churches and homes down the track? So if a policeman comes and and, and knocks and asks, are you praying or or sees you on the street, in a park bench or whatever, and asks you the question and says, are you praying silently right now? What are you going to say? No, no, honestly, what, what are you going to say? Are you going to tell them the truth? If you are praying, are you going to tell them the truth and say, yes, I am? Or are you going to say, it's none of your business? You see, suddenly answering that question becomes a matter of conscience, not just before men, but more importantly, before God. Are you going to tell the policeman, the authority, the truth, the judge, whoever it is who's there, are you going to answer Well, someone here, okay, fair enough. I I sort of figured this might be an objection to what I'm proposing, but someone here will bring up Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room Close the door, and Daniel, you forgot to close the windows, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Paul, what do you do with that? And Daniel? Well, I like one, I won't dwell on this. 
But I like what one commentator connects, how he connects both things here in Daniel and with Jesus' words. And this is what he says. He says, when prayer is fashionable, it is time to pray in secret. But when prayer is under pressure, to pray in secret is to give the appearance of fearing the king more than God. That's spot on, right? If you're praying in public to be seen by others, that's what Jesus is saying. So you gain respect in others, but who are you in the end? It's a matter of the heart. Who are you praying to? Are you praying to men? Are you praying to God? That's where it's at. So, another detail here that maybe you haven't thought about. So, why pray towards Jerusalem, which is what Daniel's practice was? Why in that direction? Is that superstition? Actually, it goes back to 1 Kings chapter 8. When, when that's the, the episode when, when De, uh, Solomon was inaugurating dedicating the temple in Jerusalem, the great temple. And he prays this remarkable prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. And in it, among other things, he looked ahead to the day where God's people will be sent into exile. He prayed that if and when that would happen, that they would turn back from their sins and pray towards Jerusalem and towards the temple from their place in exile. This is four or five hundred years before, right? When that occurred, Solomon prayed that the Lord would hear their prayers, forgive them for their sins and show that favour for those who are in exile. Guess what Daniel is doing? He's doing exactly that. Because he, Daniel knows his Old Testament backwards. He prays towards Jerusalem, modelling his prayer on what Solomon had prayed centuries prior. I think that's remarkable. God's people will be faithful, no matter what. Then we have the sentence in verses 13 to 16. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes of the Persian, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So they're putting pressure on him, right? Because he's, he's a little bit wavering, the king, because he liked Daniel. So the, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. The king was trapped by his own people, his own staff. And he knew it. And what he does later on to the satraps and the families and whatever is, is built up here because he said, I've been conned. I've been entrapped. And he had not, no idea that this is what they were planning all along. So in only a short time that he knew Daniel, he, he respected him, he, he found favour with him, he got along with the old man. So 
we see here this powerful effect that Daniel's personal integrity had on Darius the king. Nobody else was impressed. They were jealous. The king was impressed. Looks like the only friend, the only friend that Daniel had in the whole palace was the king himself, the boss. But the king could not go back on his word. The law must stand. Remorse kicks in. He couldn't sleep. No one ever got out of the lion's den. Certainly not an old man over 80. Daniel was as good as dead. It's ironic, isn't it, that in the end, not even the king of the most foolishness. So too, nothing that we look look to in this in this life for ultimate security can really save us. Can give us that security. Not your super, not your investments, not your titles. Nothing. And it's quite evident that Daniel, in the end, he wasn't afraid to die. He may have suspected that God would rescue him, but he wasn't going to presume. Martin Luther King once said, if a man hasn't discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. If a man hasn't discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. So what are you willing to die for? Daniel discovered something worth dying for, which is why he kept on praying, irrespective of the cost. And in verses 17 to 28, we see the deliverance. So, At the first sight of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. While the king didn't sleep at night... Daniel slept like a baby. He might even, one of the, I reckon one of the lions actually volunteered as a pillow. <laughs> he wasn't just, it was a den, so he was thrown. I don't know, you know. When people get old, they just trip over and they break bones and everything. He was thrown into the den, no, nothing was broken. He came out at least as healthy as he went in. God takes care of his own. And here is something for believers to ponder. Daniel's friends were not saved from the fiery furnace, but they were saved in it. Daniel was not saved from the lion's pit, 
but was kept safe in it. In both cases, God sent an angel as a pledge of his presence to keep his people safe. God sent the angel there with the three friends. God sent an angel here with Daniel in the pit. God is with us. Do you notice how in this whole chapter Daniel hasn't spoken a word yet? Yet here in verses 21 and 22 we read the only words he says in this entire narrative. You know, Jesus, he had very little to say in his trial. Coming up for Easter, we're going to meditate on that. Like Jesus, however, from the whole process from his arrest to his sentencing... Uh, Jesus is in control of the whole situation. Totally surrendered to the Father before he surrendered to the authorities. Daniel surrendered, before he surrendered to the authorities, he surrendered to God in that den, right? That's where the surrender happened. Jesus surrendered in the garden when he prayed. Unlike Jesus, Daniel went to the den alive and emerged alive. But he will eventually die like the rest of us will. Our Lord Jesus went to the tomb already dead and three days later he emerged alive to live forevermore. And throughout all this episode we clearly see another, just another demonstration of the power of God. Clearly, Clearly the peoples have plotted in vain and the Lord protects his people. We need to praise the Lord for his deliverance. And you know what? Down through the centuries, God's people have drawn strength from the story of Daniel and other similar stories from the Bible. They applied them to their own trying situations. Yes, Many believers were dragged from their homes during the time of the different Caesars, taken to the Colosseum, that's a tourist attraction now, and there they they were mauled by the lions, they were set alight on the streets. But they, they had these stories to keep them going. Maybe God will deliver us, but whatever happens, God's name will be proclaimed. We will not give up our faith, we will not surrender to the king because we have surrendered to God. Many believers today around the world are having to face not just psychological persecution but physical as well. There are many places in the world, Nigeria, Nepal, India, China, North Korea, so many other places. These believers don't focus so much on the miraculous deliverance, but they focus on the steadfastness of Daniel and his friends and their refusal to deny God. Brothers and sisters, you know, um, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that in the not too distant future, All worship services and prayers 
will be under pressure along with severe penalties from transgressors in countries like Australia, Europe, the US. In China, they have just very recently, in China they have just bought, brought a, an app called Smart Religion that requires the faithful to register if they want to attend church that's, that weekend. So you have to register through the app if you want to go to church on Sunday. Now, if that were to happen here, would you be more upset about someone depriving you of your religious freedom and liberty? Or are you going to be more upset about the thought of not being with God's people and being able to pray and worship with other believers on Sunday? Perhaps the answer to that question is related to another crucial question. How important is church and prayer in your life? Is it something that you negotiate? Is it something that, you know, is flexible? Or like Daniel, you're saying, no, this is stuff that (laughs) I'm willing to die for. It's too important. It's not just about my religious freedom, it's about my communion with my Saviour and with the saints. May God bless us to be faithful in his name. Amen.